on today's podcast we have eugene volek eugene is a professor at the ucla school of law he was recommended to me by a friend of the podcast adam white who longtime listeners know he is the expert on all things free speech how are you eugene um i am well uh, how are you i am doing well thanks for for coming on the podcast let me let me read a little bit more of your bio uh straight from the ucla page which is that uh, you teach First Amendment law and a First Amendment amicus brief clinic at the UCLA, UCLA School of Law. You also teach copyright law, criminal law, tort law. And before coming to UCLA, you clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and also on the appeal court, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Um, you're the author of multiple textbooks uh, on the First Amendment and legal writing, and you are the author and founder of a legal blog called the Volek Conspiracy, uh, which is well-read in the legal community. And before that, you spent 12 years as a software engineer, and now you are an attorney. So my first, my first question is, you know, both, I think you can say both computers and lawyers are, are, are pedantic, but in, in, in different ways, you know, with computers, there's no gray area, there's no nuance. Uh, every answer is either right or wrong. They're objective. But with law, your entire job is, is pretty much dealing with the gray area, dealing with the nuance and and answering things in subjective ways. Uh, so what inspired you to do that complete 180? Well, you know, it's a good question. Who knows? Who knows? But I think it was because I wanted to lead a semi-public life. I wanted to, I wanted to write op-eds. I wanted to appear on radio programs, well, podcasts these days. I wanted to testify before legislative subcommittees. I wanted to argue in court about interesting constitutional questions. And I've gotten exactly what I wanted, not would. So, so rightly or wrongly in America, um, matters of public policy are usually debated by lawyers. Uh, and uh, so it made sense that to the extent I was interested in such matters, uh, I would go to law school. Now, do you see any similarities or, or were there any kind of carryover skills from programming computers to the legal profession? Sure, some. So, for example, uh, if you're going to be a computer programmer, you need to think methodically, systematically. Uh, you need to say, okay, what are the three steps we need to go through? Then go through them. One, two, three. And if the second step has four sub-steps, you go through those. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of an obvious skill for a lawyer to have, but, uh, but uh, it's not something that I think uh, um, uh, comes naturally, or uh, I think some people end up not being well-trained for it. They like focus on one thing that is most exciting to them, and they, they discuss that without going through the other elements. Of course, on the other hand, uh, uh, in law, you sometimes do need to focus on the key thing and put it first and go out of order, or go out of logical order, because it's in the, you want to go in the psychological order. You want to, to frame things in a way that works for the listener psychologically. If we have computers, we don't think about such things. Another similarity is if you're going to come up with a program, then you need to write a test suite. It's a set of test cases that make sure the program runs right. And likewise, if you're a legal academic or a lawyer proposing a new rule to a court, but Often it's legal academics who propose new rules in their articles. It's important to come up with a set of test cases and say, well, you know, how does my proposal play out in these situations? And if it looks like it reaches the right result in the case that I that led me to think about it, but the wrong results in other cases, well, maybe I need to do some more work on it. So there are some similarities. Um, you know, there are probably some similarities between any two things, any two fields of thinking in life. There are, of course, a lot of other, a lot of differences as well. Again, law is a rhetorical discipline. Uh, law is something where the answer is often it's not clear, and the best we can do is come up with the best arguments we can in both directions. When I teach my students, I, I tell them, look, part of what I'm teaching you is how to figure out what is, is clear in the law, because often there is a lot that's clear, and your clients need 
you to tell them that. Uh, but uh, when we get beyond that, the what I'm trying to teach you is how to make the best arguments in both directions. Uh, likewise, uh, in law, writing skills, the ability to write clearly and persuasively is, is in, in a human language, not a computer language, is really important. And engineers, as well as many other disciplines, including scientists more broadly, are many of them are notorious for not being that interested in writing, because to them, it's not a matter of framing things in a rhetorically effective way. It's a matter of what's the truth. And if you get the truth, well, then it doesn't matter how you frame it. Well, it turns out even in engineering and science, if you want to write an article that that conveys your discovery, it helps if you can do it in an effective way. But still in law, that's much more central. And in computer programming, it's a lot less central. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Um, let's, uh, let's, let, let's jump right in. Um, you know, we're recording this on May 3rd and last night uh, on May, May 2nd, there was a leak uh, from the Supreme Court, which to my understanding is the first time there's been a leak of an opinion uh, before it was handed down. And I know that you have not read this opinion, but you did clerk on the Supreme Court. So what what are the implications of a leak like this? Well, they're very bad for the court as an institution, and I should say for other courts as well, because if this is something that, that, that ends up not being, if the leaker isn't quickly found and punished, and maybe even if, if, even if the leaker is quickly found and punished, I think other people will get the idea to do the same as to other things where they feel strongly about some subject. Uh, just stepping back, uh, the court is a multi-member institution in which the ability to discuss things candidly before the final opinion is released is tremendously important. Uh, that uh, you want judges to be able to be persuaded by each other. You want judges to kind of float a trial balloon and say, you know, here's, here's what I think, but, but I'm open to be persuaded. Um, uh, maybe not to change the bottom line, but at least change some, some uh, uh, some elements of it. Um, and if whatever early draft you circulate can appear on the, in, the, uh, in the newspaper's front page the next day, people are going to be a lot less candid uh, about uh, what their tentative thinking is. They're going to wait until they have something that they feel they're completely set on, in which case then they'll be much less likely to uh, to, to, to change their views. Now, perhaps in a case like this, it's not terribly likely that anybody would change their views because they've thought about the subject so much. But of course, the same thing could, have, could, could come up in any other case. Uh, on top of that, also, um, uh, somebody, uh, somebody uh, who, even if the author isn't going to change the views, other, uh, other judges might, uh, uh, might uh, be open to, open to persuasion. And if your tentative position ends up being on the front page of the newspaper in a way that makes it a lot harder for you to change it, that makes for a much less collegial interactive process. Uh, so, uh, so I think this is bad for the court. On top of that, it's just also people need to feel they can trust the people they work with, both their fellow justices, but also the law clerks, also whatever staff there might be. And when you destroy that trust, uh, then it just becomes a lot harder for people to interact in a, in a friendly, collegial, thoughtful way. And that's, I think, one reason why for a lot of institutions, even ones where they have to ultimately publish their opinions, of course, at some point, the opinion would have been made public, uh, the deliberative process is deliberately set up in a way that's confidential. No, not in all of them. For example, at Congress, the hearings are generally public and uh, uh, um, uh, at least a good deal of stuff at, in various government agencies is done in public, but a lot is done in private. Uh, there's very good reason for that. So, so in other words, you know, this is this is one process that has never been exposed to external political pressure. And if you were to institute external political pressure now, and even you know the implications for the future you may actually end up with lower quality decisions because there becomes this air of, of secrecy and, and people are no longer willing to air out their opinions on 
specific cases, which results in those opinions, um, not official opinions, they're, they're personal opinions as they're, they're writing the, the official opinion. You know, those are, are no longer pressure tested against uh, people who may have, you know, a, a different point of view. And it, I, it really sounds like it, it's kind of the, the linchpin of the, the judicial system is kind of the, the not secrecy, but the confidentiality of the debate before these things are released. Well, you know, there's, there's much to what you say. I, I wouldn't frame it quite that way. First of all, the fact is courts are subject to external political pressure. It's obviously it's not pressure. Oh, decide our way or you'll get fired. Thankfully, at least at the federal level, at the state level, by the way, they could be fired by the voters. Right. <laughs> um, so, so it's not a matter of external political pressure because presumably, at some point, the opinion will be released, and then there may be pushback against the court as an institution and the like. Calls for court backing and such. We've already seen that. That's, I think that's a separate matter. Also, I'm not sure that this confidentiality is the linchpin in the sense that, you know, this is, this is a fundamental feature of the process. Some other things are fundamental features of the process. I think this is an important feature, uh, but not a fundamental one. But I think, uh, excuse me, an important feature, but not the fundamental one, even if it is one of the, the most, the more important right. ones. Just, just stepping back, just if you think the way about the way that human institutions operate, especially when you've got people who are fellow professionals, who are who work closely with each other, who know each other well, who disagree with each other, but who are open to persuasion, and whom you want to be open to persuasion, you want the process to be one of people interacting with each other and changing people's mind, uh, changing each other's minds, at least in some measure. If you want that process to operate, then it seems to me it's really important that people be free to talk with at the early stages without feeling that they're, that that's going to be publicized and they're going to therefore be committing themselves to a particular position. It's human nature to not want to be seen as backing down or flip-flopping. Um, and of, but of course, smart people do change their minds if they hear good arguments. Uh, and to make room for people to change their minds, we usually have uh, confidentiality in that process. Um, just to give an example, uh, in the jury room, the proceedings of the jury are generally speaking highly confidential, even though ultimately there's going to be a verdict. And usually it's 12-0 one way or the other. And so usually you know which way each, each juror voted. Uh, but you want jurors to be able to say, to say, you know, I think this person is not guilty. And then eventually, some days later, okay, you've talked me around. And if if the results of the straw votes were publicized and it was in the newspaper, this juror thinks this person is not guilty, then the juror might feel just in human nature being what it is that he has to dig in his heels and not be seen by his buddies as someone who is too weak to stand by his principles, whereas really what's going on is he was open to, to, to his mind being changed. Uh, so um, uh, so I think the same thing applies to courts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, important to have people making decisions based on the merit of the question at hand itself versus external pressure. Um, go ahead. Again, I don't think this is really a question of external pressure versus the merits. Because after all, they all know that at some point their, uh, their decision are going to be publicized. Within a few months, they're going, to be, they're going to be publicized. And then whatever pressure there might be, uh, they will just come then. So I think it's less a matter of external pressure versus merits. It's more a matter of do you... Just make a decision based on the merits and then yeah, stand by it, no matter what arguments you hear to the contrary, because you've been put in a position where it's where your your vote has been publicly recorded. And and now, again, human nature being what it is, you're reluctant to change. it, Or do you decide also about the merits, but after a deliberative process? So one possibility, you, I mean, imagine a court where there are nine justices, but there's no deliberation. That basically, at the end of the week, there's a vote, and there, uh, uh, which is the way it is now. But then the vote is made public, 
and everybody knows. And then sometime later, the opinions come down that kind of reflect the vote. That's a way you can imagine a court operating. That's a way in which the court, in which the justices all decide on the, based on the merits, because after all, uh, uh, the, the, this vote at this so-called conference of the justices would be based on their views of the merits. It's just no longer going to be as deliberative a process. It's not going to be a process where people are going to be as open to having their minds be changed, e either in big ways or in little ways. I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, I, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's super important. Um, but I don't want to take too much time on, on this specific issue because we brought you on to talk about free speech, uh, specifically in light of uh, Elon Musk buying Twitter and, and saying that it would be uh, a free speech platform conforming to the prevailing uh, laws of the United States in terms of free speech and also this new uh, quote unquote mini ministry of truth in the DHS, the Dis disinformation board. Um, so let's start, let's kind of go all the way back here. Let's, let's talk about the history of free speech um, as you see relevant to these, these two key issues. And, you know, what, what are the guideposts and kind of the seminal events that brought us here, you know, starting anywhere you'd like back from, you know, the Magna Carta or the, the Zenger case, uh, kind of how, wherever you, you see kind of uh, freedom of speech starting, the, the, the important guideposts um, and kind of the story that got us here. People have written whole books, many books on the subject. We can't, can't cover it within, within one, one podcast episode. Uh, let me just start, let me just talk about American history of free speech. Uh, so there's a revolution. And the one thing that Americans agree on is that they want to have governments that are fundamentally Republican. You can call it democratic. Some people make a big deal as a democracy or republic. It's a democratic republic. Uh, these are governments which are by the consent of the people, not all the people, that has changed over time, but by, by then it was understood that it was at least the bulk of uh, adult white males, um, adult white male citizens. Uh, some states have property qualifications, but even there, most or at least a very, very large pro uh, proportion of people got to vote. And what does it mean to vote? Uh, it means again, to, to make decisions about the future of your country, about whom to elect, about what kind of constitution to adopt, um, uh, based on democratic deliberation, based on people talking to each other. And not just officials talking to each other in Congress or in Parliament in England, but ordinary people talking to each other through the press, which is to say mass communications, through uh, speeches, through personal conversations, that if you're going to have democratic decision-making, it's gotta be well-informed decision-making. And in order to have well-informed decision-making, you have to have people be able to talk to each other and present the different sides of an issue. So I think starting with the framing era, it was understood that in a country which is run not just by the king or by the king and a few grandees, uh, but by, by the people, uh, there has to be freedom of discussion, at least of public matters. Now, the framers did not think this was an absolute right. I don't think they thought anything was an absolute right. Uh, but uh, they, uh, uh, they thought it ought to be pretty broadly protected. Uh, there were some exceptions, for example, for libel, which is to say statements that damage someone's reputation, especially ones that are false. The exact details are complicated and they've changed over American history. But uh, there was an exception for that. There was probably an exception for obscenity, for certain sexually themed material. Um, uh, likewise, after, shortly after uh, the First Amendment was, was ratified, came the Sedition Act of 1798, which banned certain criticism of the government. But even that, even though that caused a huge, huge amount of debate, uh, even that uh, uh, was pitched by its, uh, its, uh, uh, all, uh, its supporters as very narrow restriction. It's only false and malicious criticism of the government. It's not accurate criticism, not opinions and the like. Now, I oversimplified here the actual act and some other provisions, and it's a practical matter. It was enforced in a way that, uh, uh, that did end up punishing what today we'd say is just opinions. Uh, but everybody understood that we, we needed to have discussion of the, of the government. 
Uh, it's just that they, some people wanted to ban what today might, they might call fake news, but at the time they called seditious libel, uh, while, while recognizing that other statements about the government needed to be protected. Now, throughout the 1800s, America had free speech and free press. Not, not for everyone, certainly not for slaves. They didn't have freedom at all. And in fact, uh, when it came to slavery, there were restrictions on uh, anti-slavery speech in the South and at the federal level on the theory that it was just such so dangerous to advocate for abolition of slavery because that might lead to slave revolts. Not, I mean, factually a plausible theory, I think, not a, re, not a basis for restricting speech, but that was the rationale. Uh, but nonetheless, throughout the country, throughout the 1800s, there were pretty free elections and there was agitation against slavery, for slavery on all sorts of topics. So, the reason that slavery was abolished in part is because enough Northerners were willing to support the election of Lincoln, who was an, uh, uh, anti-slavery, at least in certain ways. Uh, of course, his particular platform was complicated, but, but the one reason that the South seceded is they recognized that he was going to be working towards limiting slavery. Um, so throughout the 1800s, there was a lot of protection in practice. As a legal matter, there weren't any Supreme Court case is really strongly protecting a free speech and free press. Uh, very few uh, uh, cases actually came up to the US Supreme Court in part because it was seen as entirely a matter for the states unless Congress acted and Congress didn't do much uh, in, in that era compared to how much it does today. At the state level, there was some litigation, but generally speaking, uh, the courts were pretty open to the restrictions that were enacted, which were usually fairly modest restrictions. But then in the 1900s, starting especially in the 1930s, the Supreme Court, first of all, concluded that the First Amendment, which starts with the word Congress, originally it applied only to the federal government, was incorporated as that legal term into the 14th Amendment, which applies, says no state uh, shall deprive people of, of various rights. Um, and so the court concluded that the First Amendment applied to state and local governments as well. And starting in the 1930s, it has more or less continually broadened the scope of free speech protection and narrowed the scope of the exceptions that had been recognized, such as obscenity and life. That's the big picture. Um, now, there are a lot of other details. So I talked about free speech as a way of promoting democratic self-government, but the court has also recognized non-political speech is protected too. For uh, scientific speech is protected. Uh, speech about art and religion and philosophy is protected. Speech that's mere personal self-expression is protected as well. There are lots of rationales the court has given for protecting uh, free speech. And there are a bunch of different kinds of ways in which the court can restrict, excuse me, in which the government can restrict speech. Uh, and I teach a whole semester long class of which two thirds are just about the free speech clause. Uh, I'd be happy to go into some of the details, but the big picture is throughout American history, free speech and free press have been recognized as fundamentals to preserving our democratic system that without free speech and free press, democracy is not really democracy because people can vote, but people can't really inform themselves and be informed by each other in the process of deciding how to vote. Right off the bat, I think the question that most people have when, when hearing that is, does the First Amendment and everything you just, you just mentioned in terms of the, the case law uh, and precedent and even culturally, does it apply to just the government, Congress shall make no law, or yeah. does it apply to platforms like Twitter? The, uh, the answer is clear. The First Amendment only applies to the government. That's a so-called state action doctrine, although that state meaning government includes the federal government. Again, First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It's been understood as applying also to federal courts and to the uh, president and to, uh, to the executive branch. Uh, 14th Amendment says no state shall, so it's been applied to state and local entities because local entities are agencies of the state. It does not apply to private entities. So, uh, so if you tell your kids at the dinner table not to use vulgarities, and they say, well, what about Cohen v. California? What about the First Amendment? Cohen v. California is the case that famously said somebody couldn't be criminally punished for wearing a jacket that said, fuck the draft. Uh, well, you would say to your children, young man or young lady, you are apparently unacquainted with the state action doctrine. And you'd be right. So that's the First Amendment. But there's the First Amendment and there's freedom of speech. 
The two are often used interchangeably, but they're not the same. So you might say, well, there ought to be a law protecting our free speech in certain contexts, even if that law is not the First Amendment. I'll give you an example. A government employer is limited in its ability to fire employees based on their speech by the First Amendment. Private employers are not limited by the First Amendment. But many states, including my own California, for example, do have statutes that limit uh, uh, a private employer's ability to fire employees based on their political activity, which in some states applies only to essentially campaign-related, election-related activity. And in other states, applies, like California, applies to a wide range of political activism, even if it's not tied to a particular election. Uh, those laws aren't there to protect the First Amendment, but they do protect free speech. To give another example, California has a statute. I believe it's the only such statute, uh, the only state that has such a statute. California has a statute that says private colleges and even private high schools, with some exceptions, can't restrict, uh, can't have speech codes that restrict the speech of their students. Uh, that's not a First Amendment protection, but it is a free speech protection. I think if USC or Stanford decides we're going to expel students who express racist views or anti-government views or unpatriotic views, I think you might say that's an interference with students' free speech, even though it's not their First Amendment rights. One analogy is religion. Uh, the Free Exercise Clause only bans the government from uh, punishing religious exercise. Exact scope of that is, is contested, but at the very least, the government can't fire me because of my religion or my lack of religion in my case. What about private employers? Well, they can't either, but not because of the Free Exercise Clause. It's because Title VII of the Civil Rights Act basically applies free exercise-like principles to private employers. Likewise, Equal Protection Clause bans the government from discriminating based on race. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act and certain other provisions of that statute and other state statutes ban private employers and other entities from discriminating based on race. So those are separate legal rules, but at the same time, I think uh, the, the constitutional constraints on the government have in some measure inspired the enactment of uh, similar constraints on some private entities. Sometimes that's a good idea, sometimes not, uh, but a lot of that does happen, including as to free speech. So there's, there's clearly a difference between the First Amendment and then free speech laws relating to private entities. And I think the one place that this always goes with something like Twitter is what about utilities? Aren't I able to say whatever I want over an AT&T phone line? And why would Twitter not be seen the same way uh, as, as something like AT&T? What, where does the argument fall there? Right. So it's complicated. I'm not sure what the right answer is. Uh, but uh, I think it might be helpful to think of a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, let's say, is a newspaper uh, or a television broadcaster. Uh, if, uh, if a newspaper, better yet, let's say on one end of the spectrum is a newspaper or a magazine. Um, a newspaper doesn't have to carry all the speech that's submitted to it, all the letters to the editor that it's asked to publish, all the op-eds that it might publish. Indeed, if, if it tried to do that, it would both run out of money because there's, because there's not enough, uh, uh, a big, it, would have to, it would have to print a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of extra pages. But even in the internet era, uh, it would become kind of useless because one reason people read a newspaper is precisely because of its editorial judgment in selecting what is and is not worth publishing. It's even clearer with magazines. If you subscribe to the National Review, Presumably, you're looking for things that are generally right of center. And occasionally, you might see some contrarian piece and it may be helpful to you. But if it ends up being viewpoint neutral, it'll stop being the National Review. Likewise, with the New Republic on the left of center side and lots of other such magazines. So uh, those are institutions that it's very valuable that they be able to pick and choose what to publish. And in fact, they have a First Amendment right to do that. Another example might be bookstores. So bookstores, let's say brick and mortar, not a super bookstore like Amazon. Um, bookstores sometimes have particular ideological identities. There might be a Christian bookstore or a feminist bookstore or a socialist bookstore or a free market bookstore. And again, people find that valuable because 
they know that if they're interested in some book from a particular perspective, then they go to this bookstore, they're more likely to find it there. Um, on the other extreme, things like the post office, which is of course run by the government, but also UPS and FedEx, which are not, or phone companies, both the monopolies like uh, landlines historically had been, although these days, of course, they compete with landline service provided by cable companies, uh, and the famously competitive cell phone companies. Uh, those, uh, those are treated as so-called common carriers, and they're required to carry everyone, well, so long as they're willing to pay. Uh, a phone company can't say, oh, we, uh, we understand this phone line, uh, you're using it for KKK recruiting. Not because we listened into it, but because we saw we saw a, a leaflet which said, "Call this line to hear the clan's side of the story." Uh, we're going to kick you off, or we don't like Antifa or communists. We're going to kick them off. It's not the job of telephone companies to decide uh, what can and can't be said on telephone lines, even ones that they own, in a sense. Likewise, UPS and FedEx can't say we refuse to deliver books from uh, some bad bookstore, some bookstore that sells, that spreads bad IPS. Um, so then the question is where we fit social media platforms in, in between. Yeah, or maybe where do we fit particular features of social media platforms in between? So for example, when a social media platform decides to recommend things, like here are stories you might like, whether based on our editorial judgment or based on our inferences from things that you've consumed before are based a combination of both. I think it's acting a lot like a newspaper. It's conveying its own judgment about, about what's, what's worth seeing, and which is to say it is, a, it is uh, uh, recommending a tiny, tiny fraction of all of the things that are, uh, that are out there. And it's dealing like newspapers do with the problem of information overload. It's solving that problem for us that you know, we could just read a random page on the internet, but we wouldn't want to. Uh, so that's why we'd like to have someone recommend it to us and requiring them to be content or viewpoint neutral in that seems to me to be a mistake and probably an interference with their First Amendment rights as well. However, uh, when it comes to their decisions about what to host, what to distribute to people who voluntarily, deliberately go to some page because they friend the page or they follow the page or just they go to that page uh, on, on the site, there you might say they're more like, more like a phone company or more like UPS or FedEx. And then the question might arise, what about things in the middle? Like what about their editing comments that are posted by people on other people's pages? There, it's not just a matter of making material available for those who deliberately seek it out, but it's a matter of managing a conversation, in, which includes people who, uh, who are not the author of the main page, but managing the conversation in a way that, that, that's helpful to people. So for example, at the very least, you probably want social media platforms to block spam, however that's defined. Because if you have kind of unlimited spam in the comments, uh, then you just nobody's going to want to read the comments because again of inf problems of of uh, information overload and in particular kind of junk information there. Likewise, there might be a plausible argument that they should police the comments for uh, for rudeness or kind of personal insults of a, in a way that poison the conversation, make it less helpful to people. Uh, although maybe the better solution would be for them to give tools to the operator of each page or of each Twitter feed to decide what kind of policing they want to see. Um, so, uh, but when it comes to just hosting, can people who want to follow real Donald Trump on Twitter, can they actually follow him? Can people who want to follow the Babylon Bee on Twitter, can they follow the Babylon Bee and see all the posts, including ones that Twitter sees as being uh, contrary to Twitter's views on transgender issues? Um, there, at least there's a more plausible argument that Twitter should be seen as kind of like a phone company respect or kind of like a delivery service. Uh, but again, not open and shut. One thing to keep in mind, I mean, I'm basically a man of the center right. I generally support private property and free markets. I'm open to some regulation, but there are very few problems that, that can't be made worse by regulation. So there's always the danger that regulations are going to actually exacerbate the problem or cause new problems more than they solve the existing problem. Always a danger. So if Elon, if Elon comes to you and he says, I, I want you to implement uh, 
the new policies on Twitter that will get us free speech, which is, you know, what he has said he purchased the platform for mm-hmm. was to implement free speech. How would you approach that? And, and what, where would you kind of draw the line? Well, I think it's complicated uh, in part because this is at least under current federal law, this is a decision for Twitter to make. It's not, it's a matter then of what makes sense for the company, what makes sense for the owner's vision of freedom in America. Uh, it's not just a matter of the law. So as a result, it becomes a harder question. I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, you have to think about the various facets of what you do on Twitter. So for example, when it's a matter of recommending, kind of pointing out trending topics and such, well, you might want to ask yourself what kind of editorial judgment you should exercise. So you might say there, well, there, you know, it's just, it's whatever we think is good or whatever we think is good based on what we know of your preferences. And certain things we just don't want to recommend to you because we think they're bad things and you want to seek them out fine, but we don't want to be helpful. We don't want to affirmatively promote it. Plus also, you know, some of the things that we recommend, or excuse me, the things we recommend end up being seen by people who didn't voluntarily go out there and, and subscribe to it. So maybe we want to avoid things that they will find particularly offensive or particularly kind of making uh, that's something that makes their experience on the platform quite negative. On the other hand, when it's just a matter of allowing willing readers to subscribe to willing willing, uh, senders, well, one possibility is to say we basically uh, ban only those things that the law requires us to ban. Copyright infringement, maybe one. Child pornography, maybe another. But libel or death threats or other such things, the law doesn't require us to ban. We can just sort of step aside and leave it to the normal law enforcement process. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is to say, well, even if the law doesn't require us to ban something, if we do think that something is really illegal, like take an example, a death threat. Something's pretty clearly a death threat or a threat of other uh, illegal, illegal conduct. It's unprotected by the First Amendment. The sender could be criminally punished. Maybe Twitter wants to kind of help out a little bit and say, if something really is a threat, we are in fact going to, going to ban it, recognizing that sometimes it's hard to tell. Sometimes it's hard to tell what's it real and what's a joke or what, what the readers would, what most readers would recognize to be hyperbole or, or, or facetiousness or some such. Um, uh, uh, on the other hand, you might say, well, libel, libel is... Uh, constitutionally unprotected, but it's so hard for us at Twitter to figure out what's false and defamatory. It would require us to have a little mini trial because the poster would say, no, no, it's perfectly true. And here's my evidence. And the person being uh, accused of something says, no, no, it's false. Here's my evidence. But nobody can subpoena witnesses. There's no judge or jury. Too much work. So we're not going to police that. On the other hand, maybe you might say revenge porn on the other hand. Even though it's not completely obvious what's revenge for and what's not, because the question is whether the person consented to be depicted, and maybe they did and now are lying, or maybe it's somebody else uh, who's being depicted there. But still, you might say, you know, when it comes to porn, we want to tolerate some, but if there is, uh, if there's good reason to think it's revenge porn, that's probably constitutionally unprotected. We want to ban that too. So that's a possible approach. You might also ask, are there some things that are constitutionally protected that just so bad we don't want? Uh, to distribute it. Historically, the key area in this area has been basically advocacy uh, that supported uh, particular kinds of outright terrorist groups, super violent ones, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, basically those kinds of groups. And I think pretty early on, the platforms recognized that that there was a lot of this material there and they just didn't want to support it, partly for public relations purposes, partly because, you know, Most people don't like those people who want to engage in mass murder. Um, So so you might say that. Now, some of that is constitutionally unprotected if it's actually posted by somebody who's conspiring to commit murder, who's a co-conspirator with ISIS. Well, that's unprotected. On the other hand, some of it, you know, may just be some some lone wolf who doesn't actually engage in uh, violence and doesn't actually conspire with those uh, who engage in violence, but merely praises it and says, everybody should go to Syria, join ISIS, let's say. Uh, 
Uh, maybe you might say, well, that's such an extraordinarily bad thing we're willing to ban it. Although then, of course, people say, well, what about the KKK? Well, okay, maybe. Well, what about Antifa? What about people who aren't really saying, let's go out there and be violent, but are saying things that might create a climate of violence or something like that? So those are difficult lines to draw. They're difficult for the law to draw. They're difficult for a private platform to draw. Those are all things that I think he'd want to, he'd want to think about uh, and uh, discuss. Sounds like it's a little, it, it, yeah, it sounds like it's a little bit more complicated than, uh, than just saying, we're going we're gonna to allow what the, what the First Amendment allows and the specific right. case law. Right. It's a little bit more complicated than you can fit in 280 characters. <laughs> But the fact is many important issues are complicated and any one sentence summary is going to be an oversimplification, but that doesn't stop us from, from, uh, uh, from uh, trying to do something about it. So somebody says, you know, I, we need to, we need to, to have better laws that's, that, that stop people from killing each other. You know, maybe our laws already okay. Maybe better enforcement of laws to stop people from killing each other. You might say, "Well, wait a minute," but not all killing is illegal. What about killing in self-defense? What about killing in defense of others? What about killing during a, a lawful, lawful conduct of a war? What about executions? What about a police officer killing someone uh, who is uh, uh, who's let's say fleeing the scene of a felony? You know, maybe you might say, well, we shouldn't have that, but, you know, at least it's something that has, that at least sometimes viewed as permissible. Uh, so there could be a lot of complicated questions because the fact is killing is bad. It's just an oversimplification. Murder is bad, maybe not an oversimplification, but then, of course, that incorporates all these debates about when does killing become murder. Nonetheless, the notion that we should stop people from killing each other is generally a good first cut, even if there are extra twists. Likewise, people say, well, race discrimination is bad. Yes, it is bad. Should it always be illegal? No. Sometimes it's constitutionally protected. What if somebody, for example, wants to marry someone of a particular race because they're attracted to people of that race or because they think that that's what, that promotes their and their children's racial identity? Well, obviously, we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. Uh, um, uh, 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 restricting whom people marry. Uh, what about situation where somebody is hiring a, 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 a live-in nurse? Uh, you know, should, is that such a private relationship, personal relationship that, you know, if somebody feels uncomfortable with a nurse, even based on race, we might say that's bad, but that shouldn't be illegal. Interesting question. And in fact, federal Title VII doesn't apply to employers that have fewer than 15 employees and state, some state laws have different approaches to these things. So you might say, okay, this is all complicated. This having been said, as a first cut, race discrimination is bad. Probably a good first, first approximation. So I'm not against sort of simple one-line summaries of an issue as at to chart a path going forward, so long as we understand that there are going to be extra complications uh, uh, that, that happen. Uh, because you, you, can't, you can't, in every discussion, kind of go through all of the possible curly cues, uh, because there are, there are so many as to almost every question in life. So his position is, is directionally correct and a, and a good North Star for us to go to. To, I like to that directionally correct. Yes, I do think it's probably a good direction to have platforms have somewhat more free speech than they do now. By the way, not obvious. You could imagine an argument saying no, you know, precisely because the government doesn't, doesn't have the power and rightly doesn't have the power to stop misinformation and various other things. Uh, we count on private platforms to do that. In a sense, that's what we do with newspapers, right? How do we deal with, misinfo with misinformation? Well, many of us deal with it by trusting reliable news sources to winnow the good from the bad for us. Uh, so when the government bans misinformation, if it wants to do that, that's generally unconstitutional, generally dangerous in various ways. When a newspaper refuses to publish disinformation, that's 
a net plus, I think, for the marketplace of ideas on balance. And that's tremendously valuable to us as readers. And that is itself protected by the First Amendment. So you could imagine a similar argument for platforms, that we want platforms to have more such restrictions. My tentative inclination is to say probably not, in part because you know, platforms are run by people and people have their own biases. Uh, and uh, that especially when platforms are as important and has as have as large a market share within their own particular niches as Facebook and Twitter do, let's say, uh, I'm hesitant to, to have those companies make those make decisions about what Americans or in other countries or the Frenchmen or Russians or whatever else uh, should or should not watch. We're not even talking about the more trivial examples where, for, you know, for example, on Twitter, for a time, there were they were actually banning people for tweeting at journalists saying learn to code. Uh, which I won't get into the backstory of that, but it was basically, you know, if you got le- right. laid off as, you know, learn to code, right. uh, which is just unbelievable that that was the bar of, of getting suspended. But, you know, that's that's kind of something you just laugh at. Whereas there are way more real world implications uh, or examples that have real world implications that were actually leading to people being banned. You know, the obvious example uh, is you know where did where did the virus come from? Did it come from a wet market? Did it come from a lab? Right. Uh, did the Chinese government know? Uh, did they do it on purpose? You know these are all questions that are fair questions that have repercussions uh, in in the trillions of dollars and in millions of lives uh, that have been lost and you can't ask them. But even if you take away kind of like the you know, I think the best way to think about these things is you you, you take away the current events, right? Because those are politically charged. Everyone's got an opinion. And you look at something like the Gulf of Tonkin, the Gulf of Tonkin, which our own government admits was not what was reported. You know, there's there's certain variations here, but at the end of the day, it was I don't know if you want to call it a false flag, but it was not uh, what was reported in that we were we were attacked uh, in the Gulf of Tonkin as a means to and used as a means to start. Uh, the Vietnam War, and there's even information that they knew that this was not the case, uh, and and still the United States Congress authorized uh, the use of force in Vietnam, and uh, I think there was only two senators actually voted it down. But if you weren't allowed to talk about, or if you weren't allowed to talk about this, then you'd get the result of the Vietnam War. Now, if we had Twitter uh, back in 1968 or whenever that was, uh, and you were actually able to have people say, hey, wait a second, I think it was Wayne Morse was the name of the senator who, who really was outspoken about this, say, hey, wait a second, like here are the facts uh, around this, that would have been shut down as disinformation. And you see the actual result 50 years later was we ended up in Vietnam. So when we think about these things and the real world implications, is there any kind of like case law or framework that you use to actually say, um, you know, this isn't about the extremes, uh, you know, which I think a lot of these cases are dealing with, but it's actually about things that are very much in this gray area where things are, are discussed and there are actual repercussions for, for what's happening in real time. Well, the, diff- the difficulty is that it's hard to draw the line between extreme nonsense and mainstream sense, in part because there's sometimes there's mainstream nonsense and extreme sense. Um, and uh, uh, the our legal system deals with that by not drawing the line, by saying that you know the First Amendment protects extremist views and extremist claims about fact, setting aside factual allegations about particular people, which could be punishable as libel, whether they're extreme or mainstream, if they're if they're false. Uh, but but as to the government generally, the First Amendment protects all these things. Now whether whether platforms should try to draw a distinction between stuff that is clearly nonsense, or at least clearly to them nonsense, and stuff that is maybe that they don't entirely agree with, but at least is within the zone of plausibility, hard to tell. I mean, the fact is that publishers, I think, do that all the time, right? We expect many newspapers to publish a wide range of op-eds. They don't have to, but I think a lot of them say, you know, we even if our editorial policies on the left, you know, we'll publish some conservative op-eds and conservative columnists as well as liberal ones, but they've got to be sensible conservatives and sensible liberals and not people who are peddling either factual nonsense or things that are so far out of the mainstream ideologically that we just think it's not, not something that our readers will find valuable. 
So uh, likewise, again, for a bookstore, you know, you could imagine a bookstore saying, you know, we'll, we'll stock a lot of books, including some books that we think have bad ideas. But if the ideas are way, way out on the margins, we just think it's a great service to take up our shelves uh, space uh, uh, with them. Plus, also, we just don't like them. And we think it's legitimate to tell our readers, look, you want you want to get this, get it somewhere else. So, so some of those institutions make those decisions. I am skittish about platforms, again, given their extraordinary uh, uh, market share within their particular niches, uh, making those kinds of decisions. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think maybe the different platforms will draw the line in different places. At least at this point, federal law allows them to do that. Interestingly, some states have been trying to have trying to limit its platform discretion. That raises a lot of issues, both as to platforms, possible First Amendment editorial rights, and as to the relationship between state law and federal law in this area. Very complicated. Uh, but I do think that these are often difficult lines to draw, which may be a reason not to draw them, but sometimes some institutions might feel that they ought to be drawing them. Now let's 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 use uh, specifically the the term disinformation. Let's use disinformation as a bridge to uh, this new Ministry of Truth, which is the, the disinformation board uh, at the Department of Homeland Security, which was recently created. What is the precedent or is there any case law or anything like that regarding this term of disinformation and specifically um, kind of like the, the, the legal context around this new department inside, the, inside of DHS? Well... It all, de- it all depends on what this department will eventually do. Um, so as I understand it, the government's position or the government's stated plans are that it would help identify what is disinformation, which usually means deliberate falsehoods, often sent by foreign actors, including foreign governments, uh, but also perhaps by others, or misinformation, which is to say things that are not uh, deliberate falsehoods, but nonetheless are false, and then see what the government ought to do about them. In fact, the government often ought to be monitoring these things and be ready to respond to them. I mean, imagine, for example, uh, there is some news story that says there's been a leak of radioactive material from some local local, uh, 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 nuclear power plant. You'd think that the government, whether federal or local, if it turns out that that's false, would, would say, look, this just isn't true. We've put up the Geiger counters. Go out. Monitor them. We'll invite everybody to see them. I know you don't always trust us, but in this instance, we are right. And if you're going out there and you're mobbing the freeways uh, to leave town, if you're looting stores, uh, or even if you're, if you're just skipping work or skipping school because of this nonsense rumor, please don't do that. Uh, That's a very sensible thing for the government to do. We'd want the government to do that. Imagine the government would say, nope, no, it's not our job to determine what's true or false. So if there's this rumor, well, we'll just wait for other people to debunk it. Well, those other people may not have the expertise may not have the access, may not have the, uh, the, uh, the ability to figure out whether it's true or false, right? So at that level, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, likewise, imagine that somebody says, oh yes, in the last election, the voting machines in Georgia were hacked. You'd think at least the Georgia Secretary of State's office ought to be responding we hope candidly, but ought to be responding if the, the answer, if it turns out it's false, the rumors false, saying no, they weren't. Because after all, the rumor is an accusation that they aren't doing their job. And we want to know, are they doing their job? And they, it's perfectly legitimate for them to say, yes, we're doing our job, preferably. And here's the evidence. And here we'll open up our files so that outsiders can also check to make sure that we're doing our job. Uh, so, so that's perfectly legitimate. On the other hand, if what happens is the, uh, the, is the elections department goes, uh, often Secretary of State's office, but it's different in different places, it's called the, the state, state elections board, uh, goes to court and says, we want an injunction ordering newspapers not to publish these allegations. Clearly unconstitutional. Or if the state legislature of Congress passes a law saying it shall be a crime 
to, uh, to uh, 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 convey false information about election results. That's almost certainly unconstitutional too. So it's all a matter, of, it's not a matter of whether the government tries to decide whether some allegations are true or false. It's a matter of, uh, first of all, what it does with that decision. Does it only use it as a basis for responding or does it actually try to suppress uh, the allegations in some other way? And also what the scope of, of the government's uh, uh, actions are. Uh, uh, excuse me, let's say what, what the scope of, of, of the government's inquiry into supposed misinformation or disinformation is. If they're focusing on things that really genuinely are within the wheelhouse of some government agency, and they genuinely do seem to involve serious risk of, uh, uh, of um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, uh, panic or some other, some other bad things, then, then they, they ought to react. And by the way, I'd include things like about vaccines. If people are saying vaccines are completely ineffective and will kill people, You'd want the medical establishment, including the government, including the Centers for Disease Control, to say, well, no, that's not what the evidence shows us. On the other hand, if they say, yes, we're going to call misinformation anytime somebody spreads views that we think are inconsistent with a proper understanding of race relations or, or gender identity or whatever else, uh, well, then you might say, you know, we don't want the government to be uh, to, to be kind of constantly policing, even through non-coercive means. Uh, uh, um, uh, debate on those kinds of subjects. So the devil is in the details. As a general matter, uh, there's always peril when the government uses its tremendous uh, tremendous money and, uh, and, uh, uh, and power, even just to speak up about certain things. But at the same time, you can't have a government that's completely silent. You don't want to have a government that's completely silent. You want a government that when people are uh, saying certain things that are false, will respond and will help contribute to the marketplace idea of ideas by by providing information that's true. So I think the 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 tough part to argue against that would be, you know, play devil's advocate would be that a lot of times the government is providing false information itself. I mean, the, the amount of times that the CDC right. has, was wrong during the pandemic right. uh, was a lot. And then if you have, it's in, it's no longer, you know, they're not just an equal player on the playing field right. of ideas. They also have the ability to, to clamp down on ideas. So when you talk about, you know, you want the government to be active in, in that sense, obviously they want to defend stuff, but when they're saying, you know, the vaccines are completely safe, you know, I think by and large, that's that's obviously true, but there's also a lot of information that has been suppressed that showed the vaccines were not 100%. And the act of simply suppressing that information, uh, rather than saying, oh, okay, well, this is a new data set, like, let's wrestle with this, hmm, maybe we can, we can change some of these assumptions. I think when you have someone who's doing both those things, putting out this information that said, this is a matter of fact, and then coming in with the other hand is saying, you know, and by the way, you can't have this other information. That's that's where it becomes problematic. Well, yes, but I think that's what I was trying to say. That okay. If the government <laughs> were to say, look, this, inf this information is false, and we want you to know that it's false, and here's the evidence why it's false. And of course, we could be lying ourselves. You know, it has happened, but we're going to try really hard to be credible here. And then one little things will perhaps pass along a lot of this information so that other people can look at it and say, yeah, yeah, this is credible. Well, right. that's, I think, often good. On the other hand, if the, if the government then says, well, and therefore we'll put you in jail for spreading this information, or we're going to basically coerce you or coerce some intermediaries into blocking this information, well, that's bad. Uh, and then there's some things that perhaps are in the middle, like let's say the government isn't actually throwing you in jail for it, but is but has set up this network with all of the major media entities and various platforms to, to, to block things in ways that are practically coercive, even if they're not actually legally coercive. Well, that could be bad too. Uh, but, uh, but I think we need to, to distinguish the two and recognize that sometimes government speech is quite valuable. Sometimes government restrictions on speech most of the time are bad. And sometimes government speech, if it's itself false or if it's ends up being propagated in a way that does unduly coerce people into not saying the opposite, uh, that could be bad as well. But that just, that's just a reminder that all powers, even good powers, 
can be abused, right? You know, the government decides what's true and false in the course of law enforcement, in the course of, of trials, right? And can throw people in prison based on its judgment that they committed some crime. Can that be abused? Of course. Has it been abused? Absolutely. Will it be abused? No doubt about it. Does that mean we should have no more criminal prosecutions or no more civil lawsuits or no more police enforcement? I don't think so. Uh, so, so I think, again, a lot depends on what it is exactly the government is doing and how is it that we can constrain the government to make sure it predominantly does the good things and not the bad things. Uh, so we, we got to get you out of here, but last kind of last question. Is it fair to say that... Uh, the suppression of, of free speech is, is the most pernicious, uh, perhaps a loaded question, most pernicious when it's, when it's ex ante uh, versus ex post? You know, people have said that, and I, um, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Uh, and I'm not sure, I, mean, I don't think I can answer that question at that level of generality. I take it what you may be getting at is this distinction that had sometimes been drawn between prior restraints, like an injunction and, uh, and subsequent punishment, like civil or criminal liability. That used to be significant back in the day when civil or criminal liability was not much seen as constrained by the First Amendment and injunctions were seen as very heavily constrained. These days, actually, the legal rules are pretty comparable, among other things, because an injunction, a court order saying you cannot say X, it may be prior, in that it's before you speak, but it's only enforced through the threat of subsequent punishment. If you violate the injunction, you'll go to jail. Conversely, threat of criminal punishment for something may be subsequent in that you'll only be punished after you say it, but as an effect on you prior to when you say it because it's intended to and often succeeds in deterring you from saying it. So, uh, and sometimes, in, in fact, certain kinds of injunctions might be less damaging to free speech because they make it clear what it is you can and can't say. So, for example, in a libel context, an injunction that says, we have found this statement to be libelous, you cannot repeat it or else you'll be punished for criminal contempt, is actually probably less chilling of speech than the threat even of just civil liability, which is whenever you say something libelous, that's then later determined to be libelous, you could be financially ruined. That could be much more chilling. So I'm hesitant to, to, uh, to uh, commit myself to, to, to that kind of general assertion about the relative merits of prior restrictions and subsequent punishments, among other things also because that, that line is often also not easy to draw. Well, I think that's a good place to close. The one thing that I have certainly taken away from this, and I, I learned a lot, so thank you for doing this, um, is that these things are a lot less black and white than uh, more conventional debate around them. Make that's it, why uh, they pay us lawyers the big bucks. <laughs> or in case of law professors, the medium sized bucks. Well, where, uh, where, where can people find you to get more of your content? I know the, 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 uh, the Volek conspiracy blog um, is, is one piece of it, which you, you operate and obviously right there often as well. Uh, where else? Right, right. I think that's probably the best place to turn to. You can go to reason.com because we're hosted at reason magazine slash Volok, or you can go to volok.com V O L O K H. And then it'll automatically forward you there. The other thing is, if you're interested, uh, I've put together a series of 10 uh, videos on free speech called free speech rules. Uh, they're short, like three to four minutes long uh, for each of them. They're pretty graphical and they aim at just conveying the, the rules of free speech law. There are 10 such videos. They go to YouTube and search for free speech rules. You'll find them if you go to freespeechrules.org. Uh, you'll find them and those are helpful. You know, they're designed in some measure for uh, high school students and college students, but I think that they convey things in a way that's useful both for younger and for older people as well well i will link to all that stuff in the show notes um but thank you it was a pleasure having you on uh likewise pleasure being on all the best <laughs>